It's time for Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo. This new show discusses trends, technology, and tactics to help the listener learn more about improving sales, saving money, and fulfilling a personal mission through entrepreneurship. To getting down to business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM. I'm your host, Mark Mondo. We're on the air in Valparaiso, Indiana, and you can listen to us streaming on the website at wvlp.org or use the TuneIn app on your mobile device and look for WVLP. 103.1 FM WVLP is a local nonprofit radio station based in Valparaiso, Indiana. This show, like many of the shows on WVLP, are made possible by the generosity of donors and underwriters. We accept donations at WVLP.org. Simply click on the Support tab and make a one-time donation or sustained pledge to WVLP. All donations are tax-deductible. Underwriters are made up of businesses and organizations that support the shows on WVLP. Getting down to business with Mark Mondo would like to thank Homes by Hortensia, a Coldwell Banker affiliate in Porter County, Indiana, for their support. Homes by Hortensia has served the region's residential real estate needs in Indiana for over 12 years. Contact Hortensia Moreno or Tiffany Zorio at 219-249-5118 or visit homesbyhortensia.com. Homes by Hortensia, habla español. Welcome to show number three. Mark Mondo here. I can't believe I'm already on the third show, and we already have unfinished business on getting down to business. Um, In the last couple weeks, my guest that you'll hear shortly had a lot more on his mind, and he felt shortchanged because he had more stats ready. And when you got stats, I want to hear stats. Let's get to it. But before we get to our guest, I need to introduce to my side, my co-host, the producer, the star soprano, and my wife, Mrs. Cynthia Zimmerman. I'm so glad to be here and on our third show. Woohoo! And to my other side is a returning guest, one of my consigliaries from my consulting firm, Mondo CRM, Mr. Michael Wyan of Market Sling Innovation Labs out of downtown Chicago. And what I'd like to do is introduce Michael and say, hey, give a little more backstory so we have context into before we get to to the meat of today's story. Yeah, social impact entrepreneur probably since the beginning, you know, 30 some years. My first business, you know, in the early 80s was social impact business. When I'm not starting, you know, when I say social impact businesses, I mean designing and starting businesses that help solve a social problem. When I, when I'm not, you know, when I'm not starting businesses, I do advisory work in the space, which gave us an opportunity, you know, to work together, Mark and I, and that's everything from building affordable home ownership communities in the toughest neighborhoods up in Milwaukee 
to vice chair of the corporate board for Access Community Health Network, the largest provider of primary health care to the uninsured in the United States. Did that for about a decade. I have considerable background in banking, real estate, and finance, including writing the business plan for the private bank and trust company of Chicago back in 93, several startups, uh, getting companies capital ready. But mostly it's been um, about helping frame these companies to be ready for capital. That's probably the thing. And the work that uh, Mark and I did together was repositioning him and his consulting firm for mostly software sales, you know, after 20 some years in business and repositioning him as a thought leader in the space and being software platform agnostic and solution centric and becoming more of a, a, of a trusted member of his client's C-suite. And it was a successful project. We had a lot of fun doing it. And, um, you know, I think um, for people that have been in business as long as Mark has, um, you know, it's nice to be able to look at things fresh and new and to approach things differently and to solve new kinds of problems. Wouldn't you say, Mark? Oh, it, it definitely beats the market perception or resisting myself as the guy who could install software and fix stuff when there's a Windows error screen. Oh, it's boy. been nice to have the ability to reposition myself and say, look, we can do it. And here, and again, Michael's bringing stats, and now I can bring the stats that just say, not only can we install software, but here's the stats on why, the why behind the technology. And it repositions uh, Mondo CRM as a different type of organization. Oh, by the way, did you do something with the Lakota Indian tribe a few years ago? I did. Yeah, I had some very close friends that were very involved with the folks up there. And we were talking, we were in deep conversations about, you know, developing some economic, creating some economic development models, because the poverty there is like nowhere I have seen anywhere. I mean, you know, the average lifespan is 45 years old. Uh, You know, I mean, um, the produce aisle of the grocery store of a town of 5,000 people is the size of a regular size kitchen table that you would have in your home. You know, that's despite all that land that they have. It, it is, it was just stunning. And the problems are different, completely different than what I've encountered, you know, in more urban settings because everything's so spread out. I mean, you've got to bring the produce to them. You know, it's, it's just a whole completely different model because land is treated differently. We treat land as a commodity and as a tool for wealth building, you know, in urban environments, you know, are you a homeowner? Can you build wealth? Can you pass that wealth on to the next generation? You know, do you build communities that are stronger economically that will, you know, spend money to the extent to bring stores to the neighborhoods and things like that? It's not like that there. Everything's so spread out. It costs $9,000 to, um, to bring uh, electricity to someone's usually trailer home, $9,000. So it was, it was really an education. So, yeah, you know, I mean, the fact that we in America can see third world poverty to that degree is, was really stunning to me. And I had to look at things differently. I, and personally, I have not been to that part of, I've gone around the very edges of it. Uh, just on road trips to Arizona and just, just off the highway stops, you know, something's different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, um, you know, this is in, in, in South Dakota, you know, the Pine Ridge reservation 
Uh, that's where the massacre at Wounded Knee happened. And culturally, you still feel it today. I mean, you go driving through the Black Hills and you literally feel the air change. Mm. You know, it, it gets heavier. And I was the only guy there not looking for a spiritual experience. Everybody there was there for Vision Quest. They were up on the hill, you know, for 48 hours, you know, braving the elements and getting closer, you know, to nature and, and God. And me, I was a fire keeper and I was there to learn. And boy, did I ever. And ended up having a spiritual experience in spite of myself. It was, uh, it, it was really something. And it was a great reminder uh, to question everything that I think I know. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy's coming here. Oh, sorry. How did you work with the uh, reservation? Was you there know, a that you were learning from or helping with? Yeah, it was more learning than teaching, to be honest with you. It was more, you know, like me getting into the mode uh, of asking the right questions rather than me coming, you know, <laughs> this was quite a few years ago. So I'm still young enough where I'm, I'm a little drunk on me and my big ideas. And I learned pretty quickly that all those ideas were just simply unworkable in that environment. And I had to I had to shift and and, and, and adapt if I was going to be helpful at all. Mm-hmm. And and it changed me. It changed me, I would say. You know, whereas previous to that, you know, the drunk on my own ideas kind of guy, you know, where so much of my success was all about, you know, convincing the world that my ideas were going to be useful and, and you know, garnering the support of all the stakeholders that you need to make a project successful. All of that, you know, a sheer force of will, sheer force of personality. And what I learned was almost, and again, you take this from nature in, in a way, I, I'm now um, more going with the flow on how things happen. In other words, I, I look at things in business more like a jazz musician might, you know, in terms of adapting to the other players, the other stakeholders, you know, that there are no wrong notes in jazz. They simply adapt and, and, and make what sounds like it might have been a wrong note, make it beautiful because they're all playing in unison if I can make that happen. And it occurred to me with the social impact work that I do, is that the old competition model, you know, a business competing against the other guys was no longer workable unless you have all the chips, you have all the connections, and all the advantages. If you have those, then you can compete. Because, and by the way, the people that do, the companies that, that do, have about as much interest in competing as my cats do in algebra. I mean, they are they, they are by 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 nature monopolists. Okay, that is what they are geared to doing. It just occurred to me that uh, as a little guy and doing business with little guys, you know, your most of your companies that are your clients, Mark, are you know are small to medium sized businesses. That um, you know that maybe a cooperative model is making sense, and especially in my space where I am hoping to help solve social problems. Absolutely, the uh, the cooperative model makes the most sense, and I can give you an example. There well, before was... we go further, I wanted to add kind of a softball, and I apologize if I stopped your momentum. No, don't. <laughs> there was a few things here. The question from episode one I wanted to continue was: we had that debate of uh, Karl Marx versus Adam Smith, and for those who didn't go, you could go back now on the podcast MondoCRM podcast where you can look for episode one and we go to this more in depth of what Michael was saying, well, if you've got all the, all the cards, then you can force your will onto the marketplace. 
if you've got all the control, then you could do what you want. Uh, but but I think I can chime in though. You know, Mark, you you were talking about Adam Smith versus um, versus Karl Marx, and the and the people that talk most most animatedly about them. You know, it's always a versus thing. If they ever read Wealth of Nature, Wealth of Nations, and Das Kapital, they actually agreed on most stuff. They were actually aligned, and that was that. Wait a minute! Whoa, 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 whoa! You're, you know, if we had a certain guest of a certain famous capitalist like the Koch brothers, or you get your uh, president, a J.P. Morgan, or those guys in the room, they're going to tell you you're full of baloney, or as Mr. Joe Biden would say, malarkey. <laughs> Hold on a sec. Follow this thought through. Well, uh, it's just true. I mean, if you've actually read the books, um, Adam Smith said, you know, the biggest danger to capitalism. And let's just, you know, let's just talk about capitalism honestly. Capitalism, as much as people like to beat up on it now, has raised more people out of poverty than anything else in the history of people. All right. So, you know, in, in that respect, we have to absolutely. But. But what he warned against and what also Karl Marx warned against, you know, when he when he said capitalism will eat itself is when we reach a state, uh, a state where you have. And I yeah, it's probably not the best analogy, but let's say a guy like uh, Bezos and Amazon where he swallowed up whole industries and, and has essentially eliminated competition. Then now all of a sudden he's created a moral hazard for himself. And what I mean by moral hazard, or the way it's known to the finance people, is when um, um, there is no when, when there's no consequence to doing you know to 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 doing things the wrong way, then it encourages bad behavior. And so you know capitalism in its current state with no regulation. And by the way, you know I mean people always you know complain about regulations, but until God starts making perfect people, you got to have rules, man, you know? And so, you know, but, you know, the guys that have the power and the influence and can go ahead and either regulate themselves or write the regulations that govern their industry, that's what causes the average person to lose faith in capitalism. And, and that is the real problem. I think we've lost, you know, a great deal of, of, of confidence in our institutions, whether it's banking capitalism, sports, you know, cheating and all that, uh, the Catholic church and their, you know, various issues. But, you know, the real, the real, I, I think what, what you're getting at more is more of the Milton Friedman school of thought that came about in the 1960s, where he said that, a, that, a, you know, it's, it's not so much an Adam Smith versus uh, Karl Marx. It's, where uh, Milton Friedman, you know, the University of Chicago economist that came out and said that the corporation's only responsibility is to its shareholders. And, and that gave impunity to a lot of guys said, great, I don't have to care about the environment. I don't have to care about, you know, being socially responsible. I don't have to look after my employees. I don't have to do any of that. All we have to care about, you know, it, 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 it gave them, you know, it gave them a ticket to, to behave badly. And, you know, you fast forward another decade, you've got the Reagan years where the, uh, the regulations just went, you know, aside. And, and the, end up- uh, the income tax uh, big revisions in the 80s took the corporate tax rate from 90 percent down to, you know, they kept it's kept going down ever since. OK, so yeah. we're starting to slow down here to the Bernie. It's called the Bernie Sanders territory a little bit. And we're we're getting off that. Not- 
entrepreneur wagon because it's starting to sound like we're making the deck being rigged again. Mm. So why, you know, remember this is trying to help. We're trying to help entrepreneurs here. We're, I, I feel like we're building a bad case and they should just retreat. Indeed. And what I wanted to do here is I know Michael had literally unfinished business as we talked about the introduction and you had your notes about within the current constraints of the rules and regulations that we have, whether you like them or don't like them, how are we going to get through this? How, Michael, you, you said you wanted to expand more with several more pages of notes on making the right case and doing the right thing within our system. Yeah, there is a business case for doing the right thing. I mean, you look at, uh, I mean, it, from, from several, you know, I mean, just, you know, s- several boxes to check. One, you know, if you do your business, first off, what, what I mean by doing your business right is taking a stakeholder approach rather than a shareholder approach. So this is the antithesis. This is, this is, this is to counter the Milton Friedman approach that I was just talking about. Um, and say, hey, you know, instead of just the shareholders mattering, hey, maybe the environment matters. Hey, maybe our customers matter. Hey, maybe our employees matter. Hey, maybe managers matter. Maybe the communities around us matter. That, you know, in order for, if we look at businesses as ecosystems, all those stakeholders have to be in balance in order for that enterprise to be healthy. And so that was the new school of thought that was a counter to Milton Friedman. And so, you know, so what are the benefits of doing it that way? Customer loyalty. Customer churn kills growth, kills businesses. Everybody knows that. It costs seven times more to get a new customer than to maintain, you know, an old one. And that old customer is going to, you know, has got 10 times the lifetime customer value. These are new money ball measurables that didn't exist back in the Milton Friedman days. There's um, employee retention. What is one of the biggest costs, you know, aside from, you know, customer churn? It's employee churn. Uh, you know, I mean, your turnover is a massive cost. Hold uh, that thought right there. This is, this is breaking news. In the last two days, I've been at two different discussions about employee retention. One of them was with Michael and his client yesterday talking about the struggles of employee retention And then I went to a Chamber of Commerce meeting luncheon in Vernon Hills today, and it was an HR director for a big food company that has this food processing plant in Mundelein I never heard of. It's an Australian company that's taken over a brand in Chicago called Ruprecht Foods. I guess they were a leftover from the, uh, uh, the great meat market days down on Halstead in the stockyards. And now they're on Halstead Street, and they did a presentation for 30 minutes about how well they treat their employees, but it devolved into Gen X and probably a little older than X. I, I consider myself on the lower to lower-ish age bracket to uh, maybe baby boomer generation, to keep it simple. And there was a little bit of a generational, like, well, they don't want to work. And, boy, this is going to be a a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is going to be talking about making the case. So we had the retention issues where the older generation was kind of given a little bit of a, no, a little snub to the younger ones. And I always keep my mouth quiet because I think the younger generation are kind of have, have enough. And I think COVID was the catalyst to that. They're saying, you're not going to 
push us all the way down. We want something back. And I think the older generation perceives that as they don't want to work. And I think there's something in between. And I find it, I'm finding it absolutely fascinating to watch from the sidelines. And Michael, I think you had, we had a little bit of our conversation yesterday with your client and our uh, project with working on background checks for clients, for, sorry, for employees want to get a second chance after a conviction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Did you mind, let's, let's, let's go down this rabbit hole of, of taking care of this stakeholder and how can the company stay profitable? Right, right. Um, well, uh, first, I think I'll use a restaurant example. I had a restaurant client once where he was just, you know, you know, so, so how's it going, man? Well, geez, you know, I've, I've got food costs where I need them to be and everything, but labor costs are killing me there. You know, he's trying to bring them down. He's cutting shifts. He's doing all this stuff, just trying. You know, remember, he's just trying to pull a profit. He's not trying to get rich. Nobody gets rich with one single restaurant. Nobody. It's, you know, if you want to get rich in the restaurant business, you better have several low locations and enjoy the economies of scale that come along with that. So what, so what I did was I said, well, gee, you know, maybe you might want to start by not treating, by, by not commoditizing your workers. Why don't we start there? You know, and I'm thinking that this might be relevant to the conversation you were having at the Chamber of Commerce, Mark, because, um, because each one of those workers that you're trying to cut costs on, um, they have at least 500 people in their, in their social media networks. I mean, you know, what are you doing to align their interests with yours, all right, to, um, uh, to help put butts in the seats, you know, and, and increase the size of the checks? What are you doing to align their interests? Um, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, my God, yeah, so... What we did was we flipped the table on that. We looked at these employees now instead of a cost item, they were a potential revenue generating item. And oh, by, by, by the way, with that engagement, with them sharing in profits a little bit, that they came up with all kinds of great marketing ideas, you know, to increase their, their, their reach. Added another couple of years to the lifespan of the restaurant, man. I mean, um, so I'd say that, uh, you know, you could, you could make it a generational argument and, you know, and, and support it, I guess. But at the end of the day, um, you have to treat your employees more like assets than costs. And, and I think starting by not treating them as commodities is ground zero for that. And to add on your side of that, before we get to the other stakeholders in your samples, so the food guy was the HR director versus the marketing or salesperson. And he said, well, I... He had this big turnaround story, and part of it was treating people a little better. The two things that stood out was, one, again, this is a pretty big company. They're out of Australia, and they got, they're not entrepreneurs, but maybe this will still apply to us. It's not a, it's not a mom-and-pop shop by any means. No. But they did, they took the entire, they bought Great America for the day. Hmm. If you have 10 kids. You can take all 10. It's not like, well, you know, you get two and the other eight have to fight about it or, you know, the other eight have to pay. They did that. And I know they're a food processing place, but they were able to subsidize their lunches hey, and have a continental breakfast every day. It's got, you know, so you had lunches for five bucks. $5 lunch and continental breakfast. So, you know, people are rushing to get to, to the office on time and, 
they, their turnover went down from I think sixty percent to twenty. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think the uh, I also because I do work with people of those generations, and they are very eager to make their footprint and and to contribute uh, to society, but they also come from. I'm not going to do what my parents or my grandparents did, which is kill myself at this job and have no private life, have no balance in my life. Um, and and they're looking for quality of life, flexibility, and uh, a healthy environment in which, you know, on all levels in which to perform. And you're right. You have to treat them more as part of the team of getting to where you want to go as a company no matter what your size is, then just like, oh my gosh, we need more people, but we just can't afford it. Maybe we can uh, double this person's work, but not raise their their rate or something like that. So okay. I've seen that. I've seen that work. And even in where I work, I mean, we have little incentives, but all these things show the employee that they are respected and are cared about for working at that company. Uh, so true, Cynthia. When I say not commoditizing them, yes, that, that brings the next question to, well, are you treating them as a whole person? Or are you just looking at them as a worker, you know, that is there, that is there to produce output? If you do, you're not going to keep them. And, you know, uh, we can ask ourselves why this is the case, because it does, you know, it brings us back to Mark's generational observation and yours too, Cynthia, um, there was, when we were growing up, and I'm a little older than both of you guys, I'm, I'm definitely a boomer. When I grew up, there was definitely a covenant between the employer and the employee. There was full health, you know, benefits. There was, you know, I mean, you, you used to, you, there used to be a, a phrase, you know, are you, are you going to get the gold watch? In other words, if you were a 30 year employee, a gold watch. No. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the companies would get their, you know, get their guy a really expensive gold watch after 30 years of service. That was a thing. And when, like I said, you know, a a steady uh, breaking down of regulations, you know, the shareholder first and only mentality, you know, post Milton Friedman, that uh, CEOs realized that the fastest way, you know, they, you know, their, their, their compensation packages were based on the, on the stock price rather than the profitability of the company. And so what they were motivated to do was to cut employees, again, looking at them as commodities, as if they were equipment or something, and they would then take whatever money that they had, like the last you know, 10, 15 years, the cheapest money in the history of money was spent, you know, they, 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 they take all this debt, you know, to buy back their stock. That was the fastest way, the fastest and most efficient, most surgical way to improve their stock price. It had nothing to do with profits. When you break that covenant, you know, young, young people said, hey, this is BS. This is just, you know, no, you know, and, and uh, I think I look at it, Mark and Cynthia, as more like the pendulum swinging back. Um, and, and I think that it's a natural balance, again, taking a long term point of view that this balance is needed um, after decades of these policies, uh, um, you are bringing up uh, taxes, but you know the extreme inequality. Mark, you were talking about a ninety percent tax bracket back in the fifties. 
that forced companies to reinvest in plants and equipment and, you know, growing their business and hiring more people. All right. It was like either pay the government an exorbitant amount. Basically, you know, people today would say, well, it was a motive not to have a profit. But what it did was it built the strongest middle class economy in the history of economies. I mean, it was the first ever. And it was and it was amazing. Um, It was done in one generation. But then, you know, the taxes that you talk about, Mark, you know, yeah, it, it, it changed things. Before we get into the next segment, we wanted to let you know you're listening to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM, a community radio station out of Valparaiso, Indiana. Thanks for listening, and let's continue. All right. Um, Yeah, no, the taxes that you were talking about, Mark, um, yeah, you know, it's um, now when you have guys like Amazon and these other massive companies that don't pay any taxes, they extract a lot of wealth. You know, it's, um, you know, it's just, um, and, and, but I, but I think the net effect culturally for all of us is that, you know, we no longer trust that the system is working for everybody. And, and that is where our institutions get weakened. And when I think of the massive problems, whether it's violence, whether it's climate, that's going to require a lot of cooperation. And it's also going to require our institutions working. And if the, all these institutions, whether it's banking and finance, education, law enforcement, capitalism itself, religion, I mean, all these things have to function well for these problems to get solved. I, I, I think that business can be a force for good. All right. So now I know we did a very big macro lecture there for a bit. Not necessarily lecture. It's more about like a really big group picture. I feel powerless and I hear that. Like, what can I really do? It's just me. I got a couple contractors. I've got an office in the UK with one or two contractors. What can I do just for me to get started? What can, Somebody's coming out and they're, like, they're coming to the show, so hopefully they're trying to learn something new about business and trying to look at another way of doing things. And they're maybe inspired to start it a little differently versus just going good old Milton Friedman on someone. What are, what's a more practical way to get started? You know, um, you, you mentioned that we were on a call yesterday uh, with a client of mine uh, on the West Coast. There's a lot of pressure in California to give, and when I say pressure, there's also incentives to give returning citizens a second chance at employment and building a life. There's a business case for that, too. You know, if they don't work, if they're not productive, you know, uh, contributors to society, earning a paycheck and spending in your stores, and guess what? They become a cost to society. And so, you know, there, there, there's a really good business case for it. Now, if you hire those, those folks, companies... Which folks are those? Oh, uh, people returning from prison, you know, but you can also include veterans in that, people that maybe have been on food stamps and public aid for a while, have been away from the workforce for a while, maybe women that have, you know, had children and, you know, whatnot. All these types of people that meet these profiles, they qualify for federal and state employment tax credits to the company. So the company, by hiring these folks, can actually earn up to $9,600 per employee that they hire, which is pretty cool. 
But but in order for these things to work, a guy come you know spent the last fifth, fifteen years in prison it has got to transition into the workplace, you know, so that a you know other employees are safe, so that he feels like he's empowered. You know, that's going to be tricky psychologically after being in a very disempowered environment, you know, for an extended period of time. You have to, um, inter, in, interventions are crucial for success, but they work. You know, it's, um, you know, especially when you've got a labor crunch right, right, right now. That's what I think you were mentioning is that, you know, there are a lot of open positions right now. There are probably as many open positions right now as there's ever been. You know, so hold me right there. Hold it right there. This is where that Chamber of Commerce lecture got really fascinating, for lack of a better phrase. I'm sitting next to staff, a staffing company, and they're saying, well, we don't have people. Anecdotally, the story was, this is anecdotal, it's not obviously a scientific sample, but this one lady said, look, I had five people come in, five people approve, four of them, three of them never, they ghosted them completely. One of them never showed, and the other one kept saying they were sick. So anecdotally, what do you do? Again, anecdotal, but now let's bring that to your retention model, getting the second chance, people a chance. And maybe if I'm an entrepreneur looking to start something, what business would that involve? Would that be restaurant? Could that be excuse me, like a dispatch service, a taxi dispatch service. Uh, I don't know where the other second chance jobs can go. Construction, maybe? I can tell you one. Um, I've got a client right now who is uh, buying a trucking company. It's about a $40 million a year you know, company in terms of revenues. And, um, and we think that there's some opportunity to kind of reshuffle the deck in that company, you know, kind of like a Rubik's Cube, and do things a little bit differently. And, and by what by that I mean, what we have learned is that, and this was actually a segment of sixty minutes within the past year, I think, is that the people who drive trucks, you know, whether it's coast to coast or local, they're aging out. Apparently, it's murder on a person's body, on their spine, you know, the compresses. It's you know their health issues, and these you know the average age of drivers is well over fifty, and you know, and pushing really close to sixty. Yeah. You know, their bodies are beaten up. And, and there aren't young people to cycle them out, you know, toward retirement and, you know, and get young people in. And so we were thinking that veterans coming back, maybe some have, you know, experienced uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or whatnot, don't have a lot of workforce compatibility issues to solve. You know, you can take a longer time with that person gaining trust in in, in society a little bit if they're on the open road rather than, in, in tight quarters in a workplace, thinking about maybe even you know, there's been some success with veterans as well, you know, pairing them with a dog, you know, and taking that dog with them on the open road. But what it requires is an employer who cares enough about them to solve the problem. And the biggest example that I can give will be one, we briefly repeating one with last time that I was with you, Mark, and that is when I was building affordable home ownership communities up in Milwaukee. You know, people told me it was a great model. Love your team. Lord knows there's a market need for it. But whatever you do, don't use minority contractors. They suck. And I said, well, geez, that's the whole purpose of, you know, 
dropping, you know, $3 million into a community to build, you know, to build homes is that those dollars will circulate in the community and build wealth, you know, for a lot of stakeholders, you know, that there's something like a five to one multiplier for every dollar spent that ends up getting spent out in the community. And so I had to figure that one out. And what I learned was that these guys were wonderful carpenters and HVAC guys and plumbers and carpenters and, you know, they were just electricians. They they, they were great, but their paperwork was bad because they were first generation guys. You know, they didn't have a father to teach him. So that's told us that, and by the way, also, you know, they had issues too because they didn't have as much access to credit because they didn't know how to navigate banks like, like, like white contractors do. So we, so it was then on us, it was in our interest to create a capacity building program to help them better perform and compete. It was in our interest because now it was like, almost like ensuring that your supply chains are solid, you know, that we had that we had minority contracting firms that we could line up for the next 10 projects. You know, we were on pace to build 200 plus homes a year. It was a great investment, a great investment. So let's bring that even at a smaller level. Yeah, I don't know how to raise capital. I'm not going to be a real estate developer. What? Let's say I'm a, I won't say I'm a CRM consultant. That's a real life example. What do you think building a, a socially responsible, is that the, phrase you could use. I'm an entrepreneur. Maybe I could do something is not basic because it's all starting all businesses hard. Professional services are usually a way for somebody to get started to being self-employed because you don't have to raise $40 million or go to the bank and raise money. It's basically your brain and a website and an email address and a phone at this point. So what would you do how would you recommend somebody get started in that direction so let's say i'm a professional coach i do i'm making this up on the fly art therapy okay well if you're a woman i would probably uh, start with the women's business development center down on michigan avenue in chicago they do amazing work mentoring and doing the facilitation to help form these businesses get them ready for capital you know all the vetting, you know, and the education that goes along with it. I do some of it. Joining groups like Conscious Capitalism or B Corps, you get a lot of support from other entrepreneurs. You get relationships to help you maybe, you know, get a fast track on getting a good accountant, a good bank, you know, all these others. You know, you get immediately plugged in into networks. But I, I, I think it's like any business, Mark. You know, you started businesses before, and it was about vetting your ideas. It's about, you know, asking people to tell you what's what's wrong with the idea rather than patting you on the head and saying, gee, that, 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 that's great, Mark. It starts with that. But again, I'm going to circle back to your professional services. It kind of, it kind of begins, all of it begins with the customer. Is there a need for this product or service? And if there is, you better, you better get to know those, those people really well and build your business around them rather than building your business around your idea and, and, and hope that you are right. Oh, I forgot. Add two more resources I've learned about over the last couple of weeks, or actually relearning them for those who ha- are starting businesses and they're free. So that's a good price. Uh, it's called the SBDC Small Business Development Center. They are part of the SBA, and there is one in every state. So if you look up SBDC, uh, 
in Illinois. There's one uh, office in Chicago and one in Lake County. In Valparaiso, you would have to go on the website and look for the closest one in Northwest Indiana. Uh, that's another resource you can use as well. So what I've done to try to get everybody at an equitable, I'll call it an equitable company or socially responsible company, what I've done pay my contractors really well. They get a majority of they get a majority of the spoils. And how is your turnover, Mark? Perry's been there for five years. I think Renee is seven. There you go. And I don't have to depend on I can always depend on them and I don't have to train people again when I just send an email say, hey, take care of this. It's done. And what's more precious to you, Mark, than knowing that your customers, that you spent years and treasure, time and treasure, getting those customers in the first place, and that when it comes to supporting them, knowing that they're in good hands, I mean, you know, you know, if you got penny wise and power foolish with, with, with them, you might not just be churning employees, you might be churning customers. And that's going to kill any prospects for growth that you've got. I mean, and I'm not thinking outside the box here. Every business owner knows this. Yes. But I think some people might get a little greedy. I think that's why I wanted to talk about that. And I also want to add, I have an office in the UK uh, that just opened up a few months ago. And uh, for retention, I kept, you know, it was mandatory. The clients in the UK office said, where's our tech? His name is Sergio. Where is he? Is he here? And I was in bold letters. He remains with us. They didn't. Right. If I said, you know what, I'm going to get somebody cheap off of Fiverr. I might as well just bin it. You would have lost that business before it even started. If you hadn't kept on the tech support that those customers were happy with. Here, here. Yep. Yes, indeed. You know, so, I mean, you know, you, you look at, uh, but there's also a thing too, and you know, we, we were talking about, you know, like if your business idea is to sell a hot dog for 10 cents cheaper than the guy down the street, you're probably in the wrong business. Um, what we should be looking for, forming a real need or creating economies of scale. We were talking about cooperating versus, comp, you know, versus competing. The B Corps group, I saw this a couple of different case studies. Before we get to the B Corp, let's keep on the track with the sample art therapist. How would that person cooperate? That person will cooperate with other non-profits to feed them clients that are going to get them funding. They'll also maybe cooperate in terms of sharing an accountant, uh, <coughs> um, you know, legal help, any number of things, maybe office space. You know, I mean, you have to, you know, your art therapy has to perform somewhere. You know, instead of you starting from scratch, you know, it might cost you 50, 75 large, you know, to start that, that, that business. Whereas, you know, by, by cooperating, you might start that, that, that business with less risk at half that amount. You know, I, you know, I don't know anything about our art therapy. But it's, not, it's a little, it was to challenge you. I wanted to challenge you on the fly. How it's like a professional services business. You know, how are we cooperating? Are they going to treat everybody correctly? You know, are they going to cooperate resources? 
what's the good they're doing besides making themselves feel better that they perform therapy for the, you know, perform therapy for a patient kind of thing. That's why yeah. I wanted to challenge you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no and get down to the micro level versus the, yeah, and then we'll get on to the B core. I, I wanted to. No, no, it's okay. No, no, stick, stick with this. So now, now we're swimming a little bit in Cynthia's end, end of the pool a little bit with respect to nonprofits. And one big, big issue that I'm looking at a lot right now is that nonprofits are competing for finite, even shrinking resources out there. When I say resources, grants and donations and all that. And, and they're all doing great work. They're all amazing. You know, even just take the violence issue in Chicago. You have all these nonprofits doing great, but is there any coordination between any of them? No, there isn't. That's a big frustration. And I have got a meeting on Friday to discuss exactly that. You know, the cooperation I saw first, a woman by the name of Stacy Ratner, who had made some money as one of the founders of Sitter City, you know, which is basically an Uber for babysitters and 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 in-house help with respect to children and 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 elderly family members and people who have needs. And so, but 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 her passion was in literacy, you know, literacy issues, especially adult literacy issues. You know how that stops the American dream in its tracks right there and then, full stop. So, but what she saw was thirty different literacy organizations throughout Chicagoland, and said, "Gee whiz." You know, we're building all these great co-working spaces. What if we created a co-working space for all these organizations and actually cooperate and share, you know, admin and, you know, and, and, and fundraising and all of that? Oh, my God, did she accomplish it? And there was a great space that she created um, that created the Chicago Literacy Alliance. And it was on it was on uh, Lake Street in, in Chicago. And it was an amazing case study. I really paid attention to that one. And I thought that was great. And I was very sad that COVID shut it all down. You know, probably take, I would imagine, five, five years to rebuild it. But, 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 but the idea was a good one and it had legs. And I was thinking that um, when it comes to, um, you know, your idea of our, our, our therapy, Mark, that'd be mm-hmm. where I'd start. I'd be looking immediately, who are my allies here? And who are going to, who are going to benefit from this particular thing and make friends. All right. Now I could get back on your B Corp tangent. <laughs> thank you for let, thank you for letting me finish that thought. I just wanted to get that was a good one. one sample started at a level where somebody could start their business from relatively scratch with relatively less than $10,000 of capital. Uh, what a B Corp, Michael, that's common knowledge to you. I'm buzzword compliant. Cynthia's pro. I think Cynthia's heard of this by now. I heard it actually for the first time on our first show. Well, there you go. Okay, so here's somebody, the producer, and the star soprano who is really into the good causes and in the nonprofit world, and really allies on the side of good. Hasn't heard of this B Corp thing. Now there's S Corps, which is a corporate structure in hey. Illinois state law. Doesn't mean all nonprofits don't know about it. It was just me in particular. All right. Well, to be specific, uh, B corporations are 100%. All of them are for-profit companies. Full stop. There are no non-nonprofits that can be B corps. But it doesn't mean that they aren't masters of being socially responsible. In fact, it creates a framework of an accountability that um, that 
eliminates the prospect for greenwashing that uh, makes you know, that they have to create in order to keep their certified B Corporation certification, which is issued by, by the way, by B, B, the, it's, it's called B Labs, and you can find them at bcorporation.net. B, just the letter B, corporation.net. You'll find an amazing amount of resources, including the, uh, the tests that you take to see what you need to do to get like where, where your shortcomings are in terms of becoming a certified B Corp. And what that does is basically gives you the good housekeeping seal, you know, that you are socially responsible. And what that means is that you treat your employees right, that you, um, that your employees, you know, that, you know, that management doesn't make a gazillion times more than, you know, than the average employee, uh, that, uh, that, that, that suppliers are treated fairly that uh, that they are environmentally responsible, that they are responsible and engaged in the communities that they serve, all that, and they're given hard grades on all of it, you know, so that anybody who buys a product and service, and by the way, who are, you know, some of the biggest B corporations? How about Ben and Jerry's? You know, who doesn't like Cherry Gar- Gar- Garcia, man? You know, um, they got bought out by Unilever, right? So they're part of a major corporation now they're Unilever yes. Procter and Gamble so that division is still a B corporation and uh, Tom Shoes is another one Redbox you know the uh, the video rentals uh, boxes that that you see uh, outside the Walgreens and CVS Warby Parker you know the massive online eyeglass there's Invado that you and I have used uh, Mark you know mm-hmm. in terms of video clips and you know stuff like that you know for so, the stuff that we have to create Envato to give everybody else what that is. If you go to, they're not an underwriter or anything. It's envato.com. So let's say you're not a graphic designer, you're not a photographer, but you want a digital asset to put on your website, like a photograph of a business meeting or a photograph of a data center or an abstract picture of a data center. You go to Envato, you do a couple of keyword searches, and you can download stock photography. Some of the stuff was like five bucks. Stock video. Stock video, eight bucks. So if you go on our website, the eyeball that we use, the eye of, I call it the eye of Sauron, it was maybe $10. Right. So I apologize. Let's go back. There's uh, also um, Kickstarter. Everybody knows about Kickstarter. I mean, there are all the, these companies. And then they're, they're, there's Patagonia. That's a massive one. Um, these all go through the very rigorous um, uh, accountability, you know, in terms of insuring so that when somebody buys their, their product, they know that, that this is indeed socially responsible to the nth degree. But what I found with the B Corps is this community between them and circling back to this cooperative sort of um, approach rather than competitive, there were three different digital marketing firms that were all members of our Chicago chapter of the B Corp. And they were all wonderful and everybody just gets along great, you know, and, but they each had different strengths. One was a killer web developer. Another one was a marketing strategist. And the other one was the ultimate, you know, a digital marketing implementer. And so they just, you know, over beers one evening, they just said, you know, we could be, you know, between the three of us cooperating together, we could be competing for bigger contracts. And I'll be damned if they didn't. And, and, and so there was a business case right there for cooperating rather than competing. 
Well, it's cooperation and keeping all stakeholders happy. There's consolidation for sure. Facebook bought Instagram. That's, you know, that's consolidation, Michael. Yes. You think Facebook is a B Corp? I'm sorry, Meta? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's that's a monopoly. Yes. That's right. They're, they're trying. They're trying for that you know, oligopoly. Yeah. Either. Great school teacher voice, Cynthia. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that's a monopoly. Like I said, you know, these, you know, these titans of, uh, of industry and Silicon Valley, they're as interested in, in, in competition and free markets as my cats are in algebra. You know, they're just, you know, they have no use for it at all. You know, so, hey, but, you know, but we operate, we don't really operate in that world other than as consumers, you know. So what can we do, Mark? You know, I think that's your question. And I think, uh, you know, small business owners like the um, the networking uh, breakfast that you went to or networking lunch that you went to today, it's a place where, you know, different types of businesses can cooperate. And frankly, by, by doing so and by looking after their employees and having lower turnover in terms of employees, lower turnover in terms of customers, more bigger engagement with their employees, they're going to get better innovation and they're going to be more resilient to the changing marketplace than than employees that are basically checked out because they're just there for a paycheck, you know, paycheck players. But, but if you give them a little piece of the rock or you care about them enough, you know, so that, you know, they're on your side of the table. Now you get an organizational asset that makes a lot possible than if you don't. So how, with all this knowledge you've thrown against us this hour, Mr. Wyan, how could somebody like a small service provider, let's say, go through the B Corp route? I think that sounds somewhat tangible. Hey, if I can be B Corp, I can be in the cool kids club. How would I start that? Uh, it's called the B Impact Assessment. It, it, it's free. Anybody can do it. Just go to bcorporation.net. And the B, uh, the B Impact Assessment measures you on all those aspects, you know, in terms of employees, in terms of managers, in terms of environment, in terms of, you know, your, uh, your, your community, investors, all of it. Um, and what that does, like I said, whether you end up being a B Corp or not, that gives you the roadmap to becoming more socially responsible. And incidentally, probably plugs you into a community that will give you support and help. I'd say that's the biggest thing is finding community. And I'm going to start wrapping up with a couple thoughts here. One, I think you've got to start getting a community. Um, on my personal journey this quarter, I started networking locally for the first time probably in 20 years. And I think a sense of community is starting to evolve. I mean, I, I do see the same people at the events, but I think it's different that I'll They'll get familiar with me and I'll get more familiar with them to try to help each other out, you know, be a little more willing and able versus just, oh, I'll just hand somebody a business card and I get theirs and see what I can get out of them, you know, versus a very transactional networking event. So I would like to thank Mrs. Cynthia Zimmerman for keeping us on the level and on time today. You're more than welcome. And I'd like to thank the returning guest, Mr. Michael Wyan of Market Sling Innovation Labs for showing, letting him go through more of his notes that he for, couldn't get to cover in week one. And I appreciate you as well, Brother Mark.
it's a nice deeper dive into what you're sharing. And I hope small business owners or entrepreneurs will um, take it to heart that really, whether you're working in nonprofit or for-profit, you have to build a community in networking and uh, fellow business people to help you grow and make those connections you need to to be a better company and be morally uh, conscious, responsible. And you can't do it all on your own on your computer. If you missed some of the show today, you can listen to the replay on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time on WVLP 103.1 FM or live stream at WVLP.org. And I also store the past shows on my website at mondocrm.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app at any time. We're listed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Podbean. Just search for Mark Mondo and the show will come up and you can subscribe to the show for the latest updates. Thank you very much for spending time with us today, and we'll see you next week.